Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already, get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. In our last episode, you heard from some of the men who started One, the trailblazing organization that published the first national gay magazine. But One was made up of more than just the men. Unlike the Mattachine Society, which focused on gay men, and the Daughters of Belitis, which was the first lesbian organization, One set out to include both men and women from the start. Stella Rush was one of the women who wrote for One, but you wouldn't find her name in the magazine. Instead, you'd need to look for Sten Russell, Stella and Sten were two sides of the same coin. Sten was Stella's pen name, a byline that appeared regularly in one magazine beginning in the mid-1950s. Stella was a woman caught between categories, in search of acceptance. She was bisexual and described herself as kai-kai, a derogatory term used in mid-century lesbian culture for women who didn't sort themselves into the butch-femme binary. Growing up gay in the 1970s, I often felt like I just didn't fit in. I think we've all felt that at times. But for Stella Rush, that was her whole life. The stories Stella told me offered a window into a world I never knew, California in the 1940s and 50s, where even in the homosexual underground, there were strict rules constraining roles and relationships. And Stella didn't like rules. So here's the scene. I arranged to meet Stella at her Costa Mesa, California apartment, about an hour south of L.A., but when I get there, she heads me off at the pass. She says that her place is a mess, and she's got three people staying there besides. So she ushers me into her landlord's apartment, which contains her landlord and his gurgling fish tank. Out the window, children are at play. Stella is dressed in a light-colored polyester pantsuit, black shoes, and a cap over short salt-and-pepper hair. Her fingers are chewed to the bone. As I disentangle wires and get set up, Stella pauses from chewing on her nails. I clip the microphone to her jacket and press record. Interview with Stella Rush. Monday, August 21st, 1989. Interviewer is Eric Marcus, tape one, side one. Um, 
Gary, do you need to watch your TV? We can go back upstairs, hon, because this is going to go on. <laughs> okay. I'd like it if you pull the, the doodads, because it, it's real bright in my face. Um, I had been in love with uh, one guy in, in uh, college, and he was a black man, and I mean, it was a true love. And we were engaged to be engaged, and nobody talked to us but communists, and we weren't communists. I was nearly thrown out of my dorm. For dating him? Yeah. Because he's black? Yeah. Which, where were you at school? I was at um, Berkeley. The war had not quite ended yet, as I recall. I think they dropped the bomb on Hiroshima right after I got up there, boom, the mushroom cloud. And I met Dave. So I tried, you know, even though, well, it, okay, okay, I'm capable of loving both sexes. And so I was dating this guy, and I was going to bed with him. And, oh, God, he was beautiful. I was in love with his body, you know, as, mm. an, as an artist. So it was a big thing to get married and have kids, because you're supposed to get married and have kids. With David, I knew that I couldn't raise black and white kids, you know, mixed black and white kids. I wasn't even sure I could raise some, uh, kids that weren't of a mixed racial marriage. So I thought that by, I chose, I thought that I chose, chose the gay thing. I came out in December of 1948 at the Old If Club, and it was, a, uh, it was half gay, half straight. It was a tourist bar. So I sat up where the tourists sat. And I dressed uh, like a gay person, but I didn't know they had a uniform. What do you mean you dressed like a gay person? I had on Levi's and leather jackets, and you didn't do that in 1948 unless there was something really strange. Why did you do it then? I just thought I was asserting my individuality. I didn't know that meant you were gay. I mean, I thought that was perfectly ridiculous. That's, I felt more comfortable that way. I've always hated women's clothes. Mm -hmm. And... Um, well, these two women tried to pick me up, and uh, they were real feminine looking. Well, they had come from their jobs, and they were dressed. Well, I didn't dress that way on my job. I, don't, I cannot remember. I've never been able to sort that out. How come I was dressed that way? Maybe I wasn't working that day. I sure as hell couldn't go to work like that. I've always conformed to whatever minimal standard of dress you had to conform to as a woman in order to work. But, you know, oh, pantyhose or... Didn't even have those then. Garter belts, you name it. Yuck. Anyway, there I was, and they tried to pick me up, and I said no. I was hostile. He came up to my end of the bar, silly twits. And <laughs> so um, I go to the bathroom, and this lady whose name I think that was Betty, yeah, it was Betty and Valerie, and she was real sweet, and she said, hey, um, going to ask you one more time. You look lonesome, and um, we just wanted to take you to a, to a bar. We're not going to hurt you and whatever. I don't know. I don't know how she put it, but she put it really nice. And I thought, oh, what the hell? Why not? We're going to go to a bar and dance. And um, I told her I wasn't gay, and she said, mm-hmm, yes. Of course. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, we get to this, I can't even remember the name of the bar. Uh, it was down in Venice on the beach. Uh-huh. And it's, it's all women, and they're dancing. 
Valerie, although she looked very feminine, was, had a very strong masculine sense about herself, and she led. Well, and I only knew how to follow. In dancing, I only knew how to follow a good man, who, a good dancer who had a strong lead. And I had to be kind of half-smashed to do that. Well, okay, I enjoyed the dancing very much, but um, the whole atmosphere of the place and the whole... I thought, well, it's just like the books. It's terrible. That's what it is. Why? Can you describe what, what you mean? Well, because the connotation of having to live that kind of a hidden life. And um, in the gay bar society, you had this structure. Of butch and femme. Yeah, and of having to look that way. Uh -huh. And um, what happened that night was that somewhere in the middle of the night, I woke up and I thought, oh, my God. And I went back over my life, had I ever really loved a woman that I wanted sex with? So then when I went back to the bar, deciding that I was gay by Jing, and that's what I was going to be, then I didn't know where else to start. God, there weren't any lesbians in college who were going to be these nasty people who would <laughs> attack me, seduce me, or otherwise bring me out. So I had to go blunder into it. So I go blundering in, and I sit down. I probably had on my Levi's and leather jacket again, and um, yeah, I sit down in the gay end of the bar. And because you're dressed that way, what do, what do people assume about you? They're, they assume I'm a butch. Which meant what, then? Well, that was where the bad news came. I sit down, and um, the first question this girl asks me, and I tell her, wow, you know, I just figured out I'm gay, and uh, here I am, and um, uh, what are you going to know? Well, first she says, are you a butch or a femme? I said, what's that? This was the first piece of bad news. The language was so ugly to me. All these bleeping words that you had to, to know, and they were all ugly. And she told me what a butch was. And a butch, as close as I could figure out, was an imitation man. Did all the things that men did. And um, it sounded really tiring. I said, well, um, okay, what's a femme? Well, that was worse. What? They didn't say it was worse, but, I mean, they defined femme for me. Which was? Uh, well, you know, you went out on the butch's elbow here, and you were, uh, you dressed the way feminine women dressed. It sounded to me like the butch imitated a man, and the femme imitated the way we think feminine women should be with their men. I just simply said, suppose you're both. Ah, my God, she said, don't say that. Don't, I said, don't say what? I said, suppose you're, you're both. You, you got a word for that? I'm both. She said, don't say that, Stella. That's almost as bad as being bisexual. Well, I already knew I was that, so I, I, I thought, oh, good. I can go kill myself. You're a bisexual butch femme. <laughs> I'm a bisexual kai-kai son of a bitch butch femme. Oh, boy. You know, I thought, oh, if I had any place to run, I'd go there. A bisexual what? I'm sorry, butch femme? I said kai-kai. Uh, okay. K-I hyphen K-I. Kai-kai is the equivalent of in the gay world of a woman. She can't make up her mind. One minute she's a butch, another minute she's a femme, you know, can't make up her mind. Um, and it's almost as bad, quote, quote, as being a bisexual between the two worlds. Uh-huh. And that's the ultimate low. Mm -hmm. I was in trouble, definitely in trouble, because, you know, well, you know, okay, what was it going to mean if I was a kai-kai? Well, it was going to mean that I was going to be ostracized, and I was.
I was attracted to a woman more masculine than myself. But in that society, I was a dead duck because a, you know, a butch could not afford to make love to another obvious butch. I mean, there was something terribly wrong with this, you know. And um, I, said, I may not have much masculinity, and I didn't see myself as having a lot of masculinity. But um, I don't think I would have survived without what I got, and I don't plan on any asshole butch confused person taking it away from me. So I just, you know, went, now hear this. I have cut myself in half to be part of this gay society, you know. I have this potential. Now, in order to belong to this group, I have to cut off my heterosexual potential. That leaves 50% of me. And if you think that I'm going to cut the 50% of me into 25%, you got another thing coming. Screw this. I am Kai Kai. And I know that there's plenty of people around here who probably are because there's nothing normal about this crap. It's not normal. I could understand denying that you were gay because of all, or, or a lesbian or whatever, before you came out because of all of your fear and all the consequences that would mean in your life. But once you accepted yourself enough to get into this life, why then you had to go play all these damn games? Well, I think it's because maybe I had a handle on the, the, the masculine, feminine part of the self. You were comfortable with who you were. Well... Or you were just so much in the middle that you could not... Well, I just simply, I mean, I just simply, what I did know of myself, I wasn't willing to give up any of. Right. What, what little I knew of myself was important to me. You had to lie in the outside world, and you sure as hell weren't going to lie in the world that you were becoming yeah. a part of. No, no way. Yeah. I just seemed to be maimed all over the place. I was too busy fighting for uh, <laughs> survival, social survival anywhere I went. You yeah. know, it didn't seem to make any difference where the hell I was. I was fighting for social survival, to be myself. You know? Did you begin writing for One Man? Did you go to meetings for One Magazine? How, was, what was your involvement? Well, I was uh, well. I was on the periphery there from '53 on, and I would I was scared to death, really, all during that period. I was simply terrified of what of getting into an organization that uh, might make me public, mm -hmm. one way or another. So you were frightened about even going to meetings or associating with any of the people involved. I was just scared all the time. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the um, the pseudonym Oh, okay. Issue. Stan Russell, to me, is not a pseudonym so much as it is a pen name. It was, at the time, a way of buying time. When you say buying time, what, what do you mean? Well, like, at that time I was in civil service, and at that time, boy, practically all you had to do was point at someone. And? And, um, well, in the 50s, went with uh, McCarthy and the, the witch hunts. They were, you know, him homosexuals. And at that time, there was a moral turpitude law. If uh, um, homosexuals, they were immoral by, by definition. And they didn't have to prove you were sleeping with anybody. They just had to, well, all they had to do was make accusations. At least that's the way it felt at the time. This is back, we're talking, when I was in that particular civil service was 1950 to 1971. So when you say buying time, you mean Well, because uh, if, if I wrote under my own name and uh, somebody was out to get me and they happened to see it in a gay magazine like the Daughters of Belitis or One or the Mattishine or whatnot, 
and they wanted to do me in. All they'd have to do would be to spin it across my boss's desk, say, look, look, that's Stella Rush. And then he asked me, are you Stella Rush? Are you just, you know, whatnot? It just seemed easier that if I was Stan Russell, and he says, is this you? Why, I mean, uh, I'd figure out what I did then. And they, in other words, I couldn't be identified instantly from my writing. Mm -hmm. To me, it is a writer's pseudonym. It's a pen name. Mm -hmm. My first name, my Stan, was an interesting thing. I, I wrote for a while under the name of Ben, because I was so pissed at the Butch Femme thing. 53 was when I got associated with one, and 55 I was writing poetry. And the young woman who was keeping my poetry, who was Eve Ellery, who was an artist on one magazine, she couldn't stand the Ben. The Ben? Ben. The first name Ben. Yeah, I'm Ben Rush or whatever I was signing my stuff. She took the, the STE from Stella and the, uh, the N from Ben and filed me under Sten. And then when I had to come up with a a name to write my stuff for, for in the magazines. And I picked the name of the street that we lived on, Russell, and that fit good. Did the men at, at one magazine take women seriously? They were men. Uh -huh. um, I really would say in defense of Don Slater and Dora Lake and Jim Kettner, who was the more, the softer, well, that's not to say he doesn't have strength, mm -hmm. but the, the liberal and the softer and the see three sides of everything kind of person. Uh, but all those men were serious in their attempt to make it a co-educational mm -hmm. organization. What they didn't know and couldn't know, particularly uh, Don and, and Bill, was that women didn't have any practice in that. I mean, a woman either came along, it was strong enough, dumb enough, and sure enough of herself. They either were integrated and knew who they were and they had these strengths or they didn't. There was no way to get them in a male-dominated organization, and they were it was a male-dominated, well, by necessity, it was invented by them, for God's sakes. Right. But they did try much more, from what I can tell, to integrate women. And that's why their feelings were very badly hurt when I went to the, the DOB thing. Were there real differences between the men's and the women's issues at yeah. one? Well, sure. I mean, that was, okay, that was part of the, the, the reason that um, the DOB really had to be founded. And I believed in what one was doing. I mean, in, inside my intellectual head, I was so male-oriented, I didn't know what I was missing. But I did know I was dying because their issues were not my issues. I got tired of being the swing vote. Mm -hmm. The only time I had a chance in the damn editorial vote uh, was when one of them would waver on a, a something that I felt very strongly about. I was voted down time after time after time. About? And take advocacy. I don't believe in advocacy. This life ain't no better than any other life if it's not for you. I mean, homosexuals are better. Who needs this? Straight people are better. Who needs that? I mean, it's the same crap going the other direction. We were supposed to be educational, and we were supposed to be trying to change laws. And in the DOB, we were doing that. Plus, we were trying to integrate the lesbian into herself, with herself, accepting herself, so that she could then be integrated into society. And advocating that our way of life was better than a heterosexual way of life, we felt was a good way to get ourselves stamped off the face of the earth.
Stella Rush did step away from One and its advocacy. She resigned from One Incorporated, the organization that published One magazine, on July 23, 1961. She found a happier ideological home at the latter, the Daughters of Belitis magazine, which took a less militant stance. Stella's partner, Helen Sandoz, worked in various roles at the latter, including editor, and Stella wrote for the magazine through the 1960s, but stepped away from activism after that. Stella Rush and Helen Sandoz were together for 30 years until Helen's death in 1987. Stella died almost 30 years later on July 25, 2015. She was 90 years old. There were no public obituaries. The last place we traced Stella to was Westminster, California. Like many early activists, the people who put everything on the line for the movement, Stella's life and her work have gone largely unrecognized. In their later years, so many trailblazers have been forgotten to the point of erasure. Huge thanks to everyone who makes Making Gay History possible. Executive producer Sarah Birmingham, producer Josh Gwynn, production coordinator Inga Detaya, social media producer Daniel Lorenko, photo editor Michael Green, and our guardian angel Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. The Making Gay History podcast is a co-production of Pineapple Street Media with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division and One Archives at the USC Libraries. Season four of this podcast has been made possible with funding from the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Calamus Foundation, and our listeners, like Herschel McInnes. Thanks, Herschel. With the holidays just about here, why not give Making Gay History to someone you love? Or even someone you just like a lot? Head to makinggayhistory.com and click on the Merchandise tab to find Making Gay History t-shirts, tank tops, hoodies, tote bags, mugs, and pillows, too. Or, if you'd like to support us directly, just click on the Donate button on our website, where you can make a tax-deductible donation of any amount. And you can stay in touch with Making Gay History by signing up for our newsletter at makinggayhistory.com. Our website is also where you'll find previous episodes, archival photos, full transcripts, and additional information on each of the people we feature. So long, until next time.